read um, scripture right now, and we're going to be in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. So if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and um, Jim is going to come and he's going to read the passage for us. Would you please stand as we read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Lord, we thank you for just the way you have been and are at work in our church family. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege, Lord, of having your word. And Lord, whether that's Second Timothy, whether that's Mark, Lord, whether that's the book of Ephesians, wherever you might have us, Lord, um, it, is, it is your revealed truth, Lord, that you've given to us um, as, a, as, a, as a privileged word so that we can grow, so that we can know you, Lord, so that we can, we can see how we fit into your plan and into your body. And Lord, I just ask today that you would, you would humble us, Lord, you would uh, allow us to be teachable, Lord, that you would have your way with us as we open up your word and as we study it together. And uh, Lord, today I ask just simply as your mouthpiece that, that you would accomplish your will through me and that you would be seen and heard and understood, and that uh, your Holy Spirit would have freedom. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And I know, I know a lot of you enjoy uh, various forms of exercise. Some of you enjoy walking. Um, I enjoy walking a little bit. I enjoy walks I take with my wife every once in a while. I should do that more often. I enjoy walking with my daughter, Deanna. Um, enjoy that too. One of the things I have enjoyed through the years, um, years ago would have been taking some runs, but that would be years ago. I tried that a while back, and um, let's just say I ran for a while, then I did more walking. It was an uh, interesting challenge. Um, I enjoy swimming. Um, I really enjoy swimming, actually. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. I also enjoy mountain biking. 
um, but it's been a while since I've done that seriously. I used to go at least once or twice a week, and I would do the, the Chabot loop. And I'm not talking about the paved part of the Chabot loop. I'm talking about the unpaved around down by the golf course up Brandon Hill. and takes you all the way to the top. And I really enjoy it because you kind of get out into the country. You get out in your beautiful sunshine. You get out to some beautiful views out there of, um, of the lake, of Castro Valley, of the bay. And um, you can kind of pause, although you don't want to pause too long when you're exercising like that, right? You want to keep the heart rate up. And, but, you know, it's just, just a wonderful, um, enjoyable time. And um, I remember one day I went riding with, with one of my friends, and um, it had been raining the week before, but it had, it had dried up for about maybe two or three days. And so we thought, okay, you know, it's dry enough. Let's go riding. And so we started to, to go down this trail, and uh, we started out at... Uh, Nike Point, which is kind of at the top by Lake Chabot. If you go to the top of the hill, you get there, and you travel down 10 hills, and it ends up taking you to Redwood Road, and then you take Redwood Road all the way down to where the golf course is, if you know the area at all. There's a Willow Park golf course, and the back of Willow Park golf course is the, is the beginning of the trail that's called Brandon Hill, and it's a slow climb all the way to the top of the hill. It takes about 25 minutes to get up that hill on a good day. Um, and as we started, it was beautiful, it was nice out, um, but about one-third of the way into it, it started to rain. And we were like, ah, oh, it's going to be okay, it's not going to be a problem. But then it started to pour, and so we're like halfway up Brandon Hill now, and it starts pouring buckets. And what happened was this, this, this path is a dirt path. And it's not like a dirt path with lots of rocks, it's a dirt path that's a dirt path, okay? So when the, when the water came and it mixed in with that dirt, that dirt turned to mud. And we were trying to ride up this thing, but every time we would turn our wheels, mud would get on our tires to the point that we couldn't even turn our tires anymore because it was getting caught in the spokes. And it kept on pouring down and pouring down. We're kind of we're kind of in no man's land right now because it's like, where do you go? You know, you can say, oh, I'll go down the hill, but if you go down the hill, it, wouldn't, it was just easier to kind of go up and find a way. And so it was just really, really hard going. And, um, and then, you know, what happened was, you know, not only was it mud and our tires were full, but we're wearing shoes. I was wearing my, my Sambas, which have kind of a flat bottom. And they're good for playing soccer indoor, but they're not good for being in the mud. And I'm just kind of sliding everywhere I'm going. So I'm trying to climb this hill with my bike, and I'm sliding everywhere, and so is my friend. And then I had an idea. It was a great idea, one of the best ideas I've ever had. And that was, why are we walking on the path? We can walk a little bit off the path where there's some vegetation, there's some grass growing, and we can scrape our mud off of our shoes, and we can get on the grass, and we can, we can work our way up the side of the path, and that's what we did. And so that we actually got some way, and we finally got to the, the top of a particular place on the hill where we could go down another hill, and uh, eventually, after some long ups and downs and trying to do this, we, we made it to the bottom part where there is a paved part in Lake Chabot and we had to ride to the entrance and then all the way around, it was a really, really long haul to get back to where our vehicles were, but uh, we finally made it. Now, if you're like me, you've probably been to a beach before where you've had to walk on sand. Have you ever done that before? Okay. Some sand you walk on, no big deal. Some sand you walk on, it's like you're not going anywhere at all. You're just kind of moving, all right, and you're, you're not, when I was in cross country, this was when I was in England, uh, and it was high school then, but there was this cross country started out, you run up this paved 
this paved entrance, you turn left and there was a hill and it was a sandy dirt hill. So, I mean, by the time you get to the top of that hill, your legs are just blown out because you've just been, it's like going to 24-hour fitness, basically, you know, and just trying to climb up this hill and you're on all this sand. And, and so it's just really, really important when we were on this hill up at, up at Brandon um, to, or Alexia Bo, I should say, to, to find that solid ground so that we could, you know, we could, we could make progress in what we were doing. Now, the, the, the one sad part of my story was although we got to solid ground, um, later that day, I found out that um, I was covered in poison ivy because I had gotten off the path. Um, so it was a really, really good idea until later that day, and there may be some, some illustrative uh, implications for that too about getting off the path. But the point is, in order to walk well, we want to be able to walk on a solid foundation, right? Paul's logic in the book of Ephesians here has taken us to a place where there's a transition. He's moving from the doctrinal to the practical, from the knowledge to the application, okay? And in doing that, he's saying in the beginning here, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, which we saw in chapter one at the beginning, verse three. Now, in the way he flows things out, he talks about this walk and he talks then about these four attitudes that you need to have if you want to have a walk that is worthy of this calling and a walk that is producing or is maintaining, I should say, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And those four attitudes are what we looked at last week. Humility, um, what was the next one? Gentleness, patience, and forbearance, all right? Now, the, the, what he moves into next, though, is, is this, this really, this verses four through six, which kind of like a, a doctrinal, foundational statement. In our logic, we would say, put the foundation first and then say, walk on it. But the way he approaches is, listen, I want you to walk. And then he says, but there's a foundation to this walk. And so what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be looking at this, this doctrinal, theological foundation that is the basis of our ability to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling and that gives us a sure-footedness to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, and to be forbearing as we are maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And this foundation also carries forward into what we will look at next, and that will be the gifts that God has given us and the exercise of those, of those gifts in the context of the body. So, um, as, as we're looking at this, then, in order for the church to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace by living out those four attitudes of humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance, our walk must take place on the solid foundation of theology. It was interesting that um, one of our sisters here talked about going to a conference and it wasn't fluff. And there's a lot of fluff that is presented as foundational teaching for a Christian walk. But when you know you're standing on solid foundation, you know what it is. You know what it's like to stand firm-footed rather than stand in something that's kind of like a marshmallow. And so God here has given us, 
theology for unity. Theology that undergirds or anchors us in unity. So let's read this passage one more time, beginning at verse four. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's a word that is repeated many times in those few verses. Anyone guess what it might be? It's the word all. Now, it's actually the word one. All right? And it's, it's repeated seven times, and it's, it's, it's supporting seven different, I might want to say, emphases. So that's a simple observation of this text. It will show us this word one is used seven times to describe seven different things. And these seven statements are for the Ephesians and for us the foundation of our unity. Now friends, hear this. We're living even in a Christian culture that says doctrine really is not that important. In fact, they would say, don't spend so much time thinking about doctrine and theology because that will divide the church. Okay? But Paul here comes and he says, listen, there's some foundational doctrinal truths that are absolutely necessary for you to be a unified church. This is the bare basics. This is the bare minimum. And these are critically important. Now there's, there has been and always will be in the church a call for unity. The problem is that much of that call for unity is not necessarily a call to unite around some key doctrinal truths like this. Usually the call for unity is a call for tolerance or acceptance of and for those who might have some different theological beliefs. It is usually a call to set aside doctrinal truths that could or would divide us. And then, those who are not willing to be united because they see those different theological truths as being teachings that undermine the very foundations of Christianity, those individuals then are labeled as intolerant, as divisive, and as unloving. But they are simply maintaining the unity in the bond of peace. To maintain unity doesn't mean to change the basis of that unity. To maintain unity means to maintain the foundation of that unity that already exists. So you don't say, well, let's be united. In order to be united, we have to change the foundation. Once you start messing with the foundation, then you don't have what you had before. So you start messing with these seven foundational truths then you really don't have the same foundation that Paul is presenting here. Our job is not to create unity, it's to maintain unity based on what God has already revealed unites us. Okay? Now, it's possible, um, and it's true, I should say, that in the history of the church, and I mean that in a very broad context, there have been many who have, have been extremely divisive under the umbrella of Christianity. Now hear this, it isn't missionary work when natives in a country are coerced to convert to 
may want to say, a Catholic version of Christianity for fear of death or ostracism. That is what happened in many places in the Americas when the Spanish conquistadors came across the ocean with their priests. Now if you were to go to Miami, I did this a number of years ago when I was a youth pastor, you can go into some Catholic churches who have services for a particular group of people who practice what they call Santeria. And Santeria basically is a form of voodoo in the guise of Catholicism. How did that happen? Well, here's how it happened. Catholics came in and said, listen, you need to convert to Catholicism. And the people were like, well, we don't want to convert to Catholicism. Well, you better. Now, they may not have threatened them with death, but maybe they did. But they certainly would be ostracized. They would be, they would be persecuted. And so they were like, okay, you know what? It's no big deal to us. We'll, we'll embrace their form of religion. But we will backfill with all their saints and all their, all their rituals our religion, our paganism. And so these people go to a... Catholic service, but they're not even worshiping a Catholic God. They're worshiping the gods of Santeria, this conglomeration of voodoo and Catholicism together. And friends, my point here is this. Coerced unity is not unity. (laughs) We don't go around trying to evangelize the world by saying, listen, I'm going to kill you or you embrace Christ as Savior. Or soften it up a little bit I'm going to persecute you or embrace Christ as Savior. Or soften it up a little bit more. You know what? You have a business, and I'm not going to go to your business unless you're a Christian. Okay? And you think about that. You think about how this, I'm only going to go to a Christian with anything that happens in my world. I'm going to go to the Christian Yellow Books, I'm going to go to the Christian webpage, and, and then how many of those people actually, if you turn out, they're only using the Christian label to get the work in. Because we've become accustomed to pursue people that are Christians. Well, what about the opportunity to witness in the context where there are unbelievers? And we've removed ourselves from that. I'm not saying it's wrong to interact with people who are Christians. My point is we can be doing very similar things, but in a watered-down way. So one extreme would be a coerced unity. The, the, The other extreme is universalism. It says, basically, everyone is a child of God, and is going to heaven. Now, a simple reading of scripture, you'd have to come out with other conclusions than that, but this is, this is where people go. They would say the Bible is simply to be taken as God's love book to us, and we're not to take it, uh, you know, take it seriously, or even to consider the harsh bits. That's just there for emphasis and kind of you know, for the drama of it. But when it comes down to it, God is love. So chill out and love one another. Because we will all get there by and by. Whether it's through Buddha or Krishna, Christ, Mary, Joseph Smith, L. Ron Hubbard, or Mother Earth. We'll get there by and by. It doesn't matter because we're all God's children. I'm sure you've heard things like that. You've probably heard that like on, you know, on you know, PBS stations when they have kind of panel discussions, right? It's kind of like this thing going on. Interesting, listen to PBS. You know, they were talking about, you know, we're raising money today. You may be out working your yard. You might be doing this. And they didn't say, well, you know what? You're probably going to church, so don't send us any money. It wasn't even part of the framework of what happens on a Sunday morning. 
My, my point is that our secular world is not in tune with the things of God. And they're very likely to say, hey, listen, if there is a God, we're all going to get there by and by. Now, what Paul now gives us and the Ephesian church is a set of foundational truths that give each of us a solid footing. And I would say almost all of them, if not all of them by at least illusion, um, have already been expanded in his previous words. It's really interesting when you think about it in those terms. He's, he's giving this solid foundational kind of doctrinal truth about things he's already stated that are part of this plan that he's revealed for us. So the theological basis of our unity is bound up in seven truths. One, however, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, one through the work of Jesus Christ, and one through the care of a loving father, because there are these triplets that, that work together, each of them emphasizing the ministry of one of the persons of the Godhead. And when you think about it, the best example of unity and diversity that we have is the Godhead. Three distinct persons, united together as God with a common purpose recognizing each other's responsibility, role, and function in the outflowing of that purpose, and yet each accomplishing that goal. So, let's begin then with this first, this first area in which um, we need to recognize our foundation. So there's gonna be three of them. We're gonna talk about the first one. We have a united or a shared, as believers, a common identity, and we're gonna flesh that out with the first set of triplets, okay? Here we go. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. First of all, let's just take each of these and we kind of tie it up at the end for each, each triplet, right? There's one body. Now Paul has already told us in chapter two, verse 15, that the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles who have been brought together in Christ as one new man. Interesting, right? But now he's talking about one body. So this is not new. He's building on what he's already said. The church is, first of all, as one body. It is a body. Paul loves to use metaphors, and in the book of Ephesians, he actually uses a number of them. He talks about the church as being a kingdom, a family, a temple, and then a bride. But here he chooses a very unusual metaphor, one that we've become accustomed to, but we might even have some misunderstanding about. Why would he use the expression, the church is a body? Because it is a very effective metaphor to describe what is going on in the church. Okay? The body is, is something that is always working together, even though it is made up of many, many parts. In other words, using a modern day expression, the body is organic. It's all intertwined. It's all working together. The church is not a watch. It's not an airplane. It's not a motor of some kind that has different parts like a machine that are kind of all working together and connected. The church, no, is like a body whose many parts not only are working together, but they are depending on one another for their health and well-being. And that's much different than simply the parts of an engine all kind of working together. 
Each part of the body is dependent on the other parts of the body. And Paul develops this image further in 1 Corinthians, if you want to follow along, 1 Corinthians 12. I'll begin at verse 21 and take a little break in verse 23. But here's what it says. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Anyone here ever stub a toe? How does that affect the rest of your body? Movement, pain. Anyone here suffer from mouth sores? You get a little, little mouth sore and it just, oh man, it just affects the whole body, right? You get a headache, it affects the whole body. And the point is, it's because we're not just many parts kind of just simply connected. We're, we're many parts, we're, the body is many parts, but it's interconnected and affects other parts of the body. So there are different parts of the body, but those parts are dependent on one another. They nourish, they protect, they supply, and they support the other members of the body. And that is what we are as the church. Not what we are to be, but what we are as the church. We are the body of Christ. A body with many individual parts that are interdependent on one another. Nourishing, protecting, supplying and supporting one another. That's what we are. And just look around, if you're part of this fellowship, you are a member of the body. And our growth is dependent on everyone in this room. There's a corporate dynamic to this church that God wants us to see. And in American individualism, I say Western individualism, that kind of goes contrary. But there is this, this corporate community thing that is absolutely critical to Paul when he's describing the church as the body. So the church is a body. Secondly, this is really important, the church is one body. Okay? Now it is important for us to know that there's only one church. Not many churches, but one church. Are you saying, Pastor Rod, that Gateway Bible Church is the only church? No. But what Paul is saying here is there's one body, and this one body is the church, and that church is the gathering of every true believer under or into this spiritual organism called the church. We might want to call it the, um, the invisible church. It's the church that you cannot see. It is the spiritual church. And the spiritual church where everyone who, is true, who truly knows Christ as Lord and Savior um, belongs. They might live in Bolivia, Russia, Botswana, even Idaho if you can believe it. But they're all part of that one church. Okay? There's only one. There's not two. There's not a western church. There's not an eastern church. There's one church whose head is Christ. That's using a different analogy about the body, but there's one church, okay? 
And it's really important to recognize that because this invisible church, this universal church then is fleshed out in local contexts, what we call the, you might wanna say, a multiple local visible expressions of that one true church. And Gateway Bible Church is one of those local expressions. Now the reality is we can't stay at this universal church level. That won't do any good because if you remember what Paul says to the Ephesian church is that through the church, the manifold grace of God is gonna be made known to the world. So you have to have a church that you can see to make something known. And that happens through local congregations. When you're driving down the street, remember, that building is not a church. We call it that, it's our vernacular, but it's simply a building. And the fact that we don't have a building that is our own does not make us any less of a church. In fact, in some ways, we're more of a church because we're not hindered by some building that we think is the church, okay? So there are churches that you see today that gather in various buildings on a Sunday, but again, those buildings are not the church. It is the people who are truly born again that are part of that church, but fleshed out in local assemblies, right? So we're one body, one body, fleshed out, in local context. Secondly, we're one spirit. One spirit. This is really important. There is one spirit. Now, it says here, verse four, there is one body and one spirit. Now notice the word spirit in the ESV is capitalized. Now, sometimes when the word spirit is used, it refers to what we would call the human spirit. And at times, it's appropriate to translate it that way, but here, um, the Apostle Paul is not talking about your spirit somehow, that, that your spirit is the foundation of things. It is the Holy Spirit and his work and his ministry that is foundational for this body, for this church. Why? Because he is the agent of new birth. Regeneration. He is the one who indwells each believer individually and is present with the whole church corporately. So, this is talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, what is important to know is that we have all come to Christ in very unique ways. You could go around this room, and some of you would say, Hey, I was, I was saved when I was, you know, when I was you know, five years old at a young age. And some would say they were saved in their teens because of a youth group. And some would say that they were converted through a friend who was willing to share the gospel. Others of you would say, you know, you were, you were pursuing God in some way, shape, or form. You, you, you were longing for truth. You were empty and you were searching for the meaning of life. And you found yourself in, in a more intellectual pursuit. But through that pursuit, you came face to face with the gospel and you had to you had to search it out to find out whether it was true. And it was clear to you that the gospel was what made sense and all other forms of religion just fall flat. That may ha be how you came to know the Lord. Others have been saved after years of being part of the church but have never truly uh, seen their sin as God sees it. Now the point here is this. 
the diversity of our testimonies comes to a head with what we all have in common. And that is, it wasn't us who saved us, it was the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit pursuing us that drew us to Christ that brought salvation. Okay? This is the, going back to chapter 1, verse 3. Right? He chose us in him before the foundations of the world. And the Holy Spirit is the one who actually fleshes out that whole process. He is the one that pursues us and draws us to the gospel and regenerates us in that gospel. So what God had planned for us before the creation of the world, the Holy Spirit actively accomplishes in each and every one of us. That's what we all have in common. We have different stories, but we have the same spirit who accomplishes his purposes in us. And that's why it's fun to hear people's testimonies. You know, how did God do it with you? And how did God do it with you? And it's like, wow. You know, you couldn't orchestrate that. Except that God is the one that orchestrates that. So the Holy Spirit awakens us to the sin in our lives. He regenerates us. He grants us faith to believe. He is presently now at work seeking to sanctify us and producing fruit in our lives. That's the ministry and role of the Spirit. So there's, there's one Spirit. There's not like two spirits out there. There's one Spirit that unites us all together in Christ, that draws us into the family of God. It is the Holy Spirit. Then there's this hope that's talked about chapter uh, verse 4. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Now Christians have joined together into one body by the Spirit of God and they are also given hope. In Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, Paul has already established the hope of the believer, his eternity, that is pledged by the Holy Spirit with the guarantee of our inheritance, if you remember that. The Holy Spirit was already active we heard that earlier on in the story or in, the, in, in Paul's unfolding of God's eternal plan. And we have this inheritance awaiting us. It's something yet future, right? This is our hope. Now, sadly, the word hope in our secular context has been so watered down, we might miss the meaning of what biblical hope is all about. The secular world says we hope for tomorrow to be warm and sunny, you never know here in California what that's going to be like, right? We, we hope that the lunch that we put in the crock pot for today will turn out well. And I, for your sake, I hope so too, okay? We, we hope that our favorite team will win their next game. And if you're a Warriors fan, that didn't happen last night, okay? Okay, just, just a moment of silence for all of you grieving. <laughs> the biblical hope is not a hope of elusive, wishful thinking. Biblical hope is based on certainty and confidence because it is rooted in the very heart and purposes of God. God has said this is true, and because I know the nature of God and that he is consistent and whatever he says will take place, I can be certain and I can be confident. So when he says... When he says, I am coming back again, it's not wishful thinking. 
And people can mock and they can scorn and say, ah, oh, you believe that Jesus is coming again. Hey, listen, I don't just believe it. It is certain to happen. And you know what? You better be ready. Rather than being on the defensive, say, hey, listen, you know what? I'm certain about this. So God has promised his children that they are seated in Christ in the heavenly places. God has guaranteed our inheritance through the Holy Spirit. God has promised that he will return again and that when he does, we'll be ushered into his heavenly kingdom, into heaven. Now friends, this is our identity. We are the body of Christ having been drawn by the Holy Spirit who now gives us this eternal hope. This is who we are. If you're a child of God, you are part of the body of Christ. That is your identity. Don't try and run away from it. Don't try and pretend I can be a Christian but not still carry the label of part of the body of Christ. They're, they're one and the same. All right, Those people who left the basketball game last night when the Warriors lost to the Clippers left with their shirts and uniforms on that says warrior fan. They left with that name. And if you're a child of God, you're part of the body of Christ. You're part of the church. That's where you belong. So when someone in Christianity comes along and says, hey, listen, you know, I'm done with the church. And there have been people that have said that. I've given up in the church then guess what? You've given up on God's plan because that is who you are and that is what he's created you to be a part of. So it isn't optional. So be proud of that identity. Be present with that identity. In other words, be present with the church. Seek to understand that identity as God has revealed it in his word. Seek to find your role in that identity by the use of your gifts and seek to serve that church for the glory of God. This is your identity. This is who you are, drawn by the Holy Spirit, brought into the church, which is the body of Christ, and with the certainty of what is yet to come, your inheritance, heaven, being with the Lord for eternity. That is our shared identity. But now we need to turn to see what I'm calling our united testimony, our united testimony. And we begin with the fact that Jesus is our one Lord. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. These are words that characterize the testimony or the witness of all who are truly Christ's. We believe in one Lord, we believe in one faith, we believe in one Baptism. So let's look at the Lord part first, okay? In chapter 2, verse 21, Paul says to the church, uh, says that the church, I should say, as a structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It's the only use of the word Lord before this. There's one Lord. That Lord, of course, is Jesus himself. The world may know many lords, turn to 1 Corinthians 8 and verses 5 and 6. The world knows many lords, 
but Christians know only one. Again, this is Paul speaking, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, and he puts the parentheses there, the quotation marks there, and many lords, yet for us, talking to believers, there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, and who is that Lord? Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There's one Lord. There's not many. So when you listen to some professing Christians, though, as you listen to them talk, you might conclude that they believe that there are many lords. I was talking to a friend a few years ago. It was late at night, and I remember talking to that friend about about you know, the word of God and what scripture says about life and sin and reconciliation. And it was, a pretty, it was a pretty intense and heated conversation. And this person couldn't accept what I was showing them from the word of God. And they responded by saying, well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. To which I responded kindly, well then, who is your Jesus? Is your Jesus the Jesus revealed in Scripture, or is your Jesus a Jesus that conforms to your personal liking? Now, friends, we've got to be careful that we're not just somehow bringing a system and saying, Here, here's a Jesus this system teaches. We must be purposeful to say, let's look at Scripture, let's see what Scripture says about who this Jesus is. And who is the Jesus that the word of God reveals? That's critically important for us. And so, friends, it's important to recognize there's only one Jesus, and he is the one who is Lord. He is master. He is ruler, and we are all to be submissive to him. There's not two Jesuses. There's only one Lord. And in the body, he is the one who gives the orders, so if Christians are in conflict or if, if they're divided, it's because they have not understood what Jesus has said or the fact that he has commanded certain things or that um, he, is, he has a particular will for that particular issue that they're facing. Because he is Lord and he speaks through his word about life. The question is, are we willing to listen to what he has to say? There's one Lord. So Jesus is the one and only Lord of the church. There is no other. It isn't Joseph Smith and Jesus. It isn't Mary, as much as we want to respect her and Jesus. It isn't science or Darwin, technology or atheism. It isn't you and it isn't me. There's one Lord and it's Jesus. Romans 10, 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on him or on all who call him. And the point there is this. He's not Lord of all in the sense of everyone. He's talking about Jews and Greeks, both Jews and Greeks. He is Lord of them. Okay? So there's this, this revelation here by Paul that the same Lord of the Jews, the same Lord of the Greeks or the Gentiles. Now, that's the one Lord. And we're united in that testimony. We say, he is Lord. All right? There's one faith. There's one faith. 
Now, faith can be understood objectively and it can be understood subjectively. Subjectively, it means our experience of faith. We come to Jesus by faith in his gospel and we find that already talked about in chapter one, I believe it is 13 or 14, where it talks about you must believe. That's the word faith, okay? So there certainly is this aspect of us needing to exercise faith in the gospel And friends, it is a critical issue in our world today, in our church today, do we come to God by our works seeking to gain some kind of merit before God, or do we come to God by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross? Those are two critically different approaches to how we come to God. And the way we come to God is by faith, not based on our works. Now certainly the scope of scripture rings the tune that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Like I said, we've already seen this in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing. In other words, my own work, right? It is the gift of God and not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's one faith. Okay, and that's the subjective faith. But there's also an objective faith, and objectively, when we talk about faith, it's referring to the body of faith, okay? If you remember in Jude's letter, when we studied through Jude, Jude 3 said this, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So it was a body of faith. Then he tells them in verse 20 of Jude, in your most holy faith, talking about the faith, and Paul, again, in Colossians, speaking to the Colossians church, chapter two, verse seven, says they are to be established in the faith. So the faith, then, is, is a body of truth. That's the objective form of faith. And I, I think that the, the faith that's being talked about here is not the personal faith. It's the objective faith, this body of truth, this body of truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. I mean, how could, how could your faith be the foundation? If your faith is a foundation, then it becomes a work, right? This is the faith. So the, the, the sense here is there's only one faith and one body of truth. In other words, there's only one gospel. There's only one source of truth, and that is the Bible. Every believer is responsible to study faithfully and diligently the faith, and that is the word of God. Again, that's why it was just so wonderful to hear the testimonies this morning of the ladies and how you were just growing and and loving that growth. We're also all called to teach the faith and to do it in such a way where people are learning and growing and maturing and to do it in love. Because we recognize that that people are gonna move along in their understanding of the faith at different paces and in different ways, and some people are gonna get hung up on things because they've been brought up to to learn certain things or their their culture where they came from had a different mindset, and so they're, they're trying to understand under the lordship of Christ what God's word is actually saying and meaning. And so we gotta, we gotta be patient, we gotta love one another as we establish and teach that faith. There's the faith, and then there's also the baptism, one baptism. Again, there's some debate as to 
what this baptism is actually talking about. Some believe that's referring to the fact that every believer is baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Others, however, understand it to mean the ordinance of baptism. I lean toward the the latter, that would be the ordinance of baptism for this reason. The ministry of the Holy Spirit baptizing us in the body of Christ really is an issue that's already been brought up, right? There's one body, there's one spirit. The work of the spirit is to baptize everyone into the body of Christ. That has already taken place. But now there's one baptism. What's the, the point of the baptism that is going to take place in each believer? Well, the point of the baptism that takes place in each believer is for each believer through that ordinance of baptism to publicly identify, and that publicly could be with the body of Christ, and sometimes it's with those that are not part of the body of Christ. It's publicly declaring what God has already done inwardly in your life. So the fact that the Holy Spirit has baptized you into the body of Christ that he's drawn you into the family of God, is now made publicly evident by baptism. And so this one baptism, just back off a little bit here, is not emphasizing the mode of baptism, but it's emphasizing the point of baptism. And there are many different denominations that, that carry baptism out in different ways. Some sprinkle, some pour, some immerse. We would lean on the immerse, just follow the pattern of scripture, but Uh, There are those that might sprinkle, there are those that might pour, but the purpose of that baptism is to publicly identify that this person, and I would say this person who's being baptized, is a child of God and has embraced him as their Lord and Savior. That's the point here, this one baptism, okay? Now as a pastor, it's one of my greatest joys to share in the baptism of believers. I may be officiating at a baptism, but the story and the testimony of the individual um, who who is standing before all these people is, is to let everyone there know that Jesus is Lord and that he is their Lord and that they have embraced him and their desires to live for him. That's a powerful statement. Now, my friend in, in, in Lebanon, Edgar Trabulsi, tells me, he said, Rod, we, we can no longer have public baptisms. What he means by that is baptisms in his church where the public is invited. Because what happens is you have family members who do not like the fact that someone is getting baptized and they will actually do harm to that individual so they have to have closed baptisms where they don't tell everyone that it's the church family that does that. A different context do it different ways. In Russia, I was never there because I was always there in the middle of winter, but my friends in Russia don't care so much about the fact that it's the middle of winter. If it's time to baptize, they all go down to the, to the river in their white gowns and they go into that cold water. All right? So my, my Russian friends probably recognize some of that stuff, right? Because we got to baptize. My, one of my fondest um, memories of baptism it was actually my first time in Bolivia, so this would be like, what, 14 years ago, and we were out in the villages up in the hills and near Samaipata, but beyond where, where Matias grew up. And, he, and, and we're, we're kind of, it's the day before, he says, Rod, hey, you wanna help me with some baptisms tomorrow? And I'm like, sure, I'll help you with some baptisms. All right, good, so the, the churches, they have baptistries? He just looked at me and smiled. He says, no, we just find some water 
And so we were at this one church. He said, all right, you know, it's time for a baptism service, and so come with me. And I did bring a change of clothes, but I just, you know, I just, brought, I just had my, my khakis on and a shirt, and there was this kind, of, this kind of hilly area, and there was this big ravine, and the bottom of this ravine was this, this creek that kind of meandered. And we had to go find enough water in this, in this creek where we could actually immerse someone. So we started to wade around, and we finally found, found a place, and, and it was kind of a pool, and, and, and it was really an awesome experience because people were on top of this ravine all standing up there and we did the baptisms down here and they're up there and they're all singing and then we would pause and we would baptize. Of course, it, was, it wasn't deep enough I could stand so I was on my knees, right? You know, we're baptizing and bringing them up but it was just such a wonderful expression and opportunity for the church to celebrate conversion and to do it in a, in a public way. And friends, I just want to challenge you. If, you, if you're a child of God and you have not yet been baptized, it's not, it's not supposed to be an option. It is a next step of obedience for you to identify with the body of Christ and maybe even with those that are not a part of the body of Christ that you are saying that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And if that's something that you believe that you need to do, just talk to me and we will see about arranging that and walking you through what that means. Now, the only thing that's stopping you from being baptized really is you. You may be embarrassed about going through a ceremony where you may be the center of attention. I understand that. Um, but if we're a happy family, we don't care about that, right? We're, we're, we're thankful for you. Secondly, you might be fearful that we would see you with all your hair wet. Um, if it makes you feel better, I'll get my hair wet. It, you know, it just doesn't, you go, to, you go to the beach, you go to the pool, you're going to get your hair wet. But this is the church. This is what it involves. And quite frankly, we don't care. We're just thankful that you're celebrating who God is and, and how, you've, you, you, how you are part of the body of Christ. Okay? He chose you before the foundation of the world. And I just want to encourage you, if you haven't been baptized yet, to make it a point to do that. Right? Now, friends, this is our shared testimony. Our shared testimony is that we have one Lord, Jesus Christ, and we know that Lord by faith and based on the faith. And this is the faith that we stand on. This is the faith that we believe, and we demonstrate that by going through the waters of baptism. Okay? And then we have this last one. We call it a triplet, not because, um, not because one God and Father is some kind of a triplet, but there are three things that are said about him there. One God and Father of all, who is over all, who is through all, and who is in all. And there is this fatherhood of God, this wonderful reality that he is the heavenly Father. So Paul, when Paul declares to us that there is one God and Father of all, he reminds us that despite our differences, ethnic and social, that we are all of the same family because we share the same Father. And so what we have here is a united family with God being the Father. This is what he was saying in chapter 2, verse 18 and following, for through him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father 
so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, the family of God. So in the household of God, we have the, the doting affection of a heavenly father. We also have the joy and the affection of our brothers and sisters who are also in Christ and share in the household. It's all part of being a family. I remember the first time I came out to California when I was still dating my wife. At that point in time, we were, I think, engaged. Maybe we weren't. Um, maybe, I don't think we were, actually. So I came here, and I, I met people in that church, the First Spanish Baptist Church in California. And I can confidently say that in all of my life, I have not been kissed by so many women in one day <laughs> as when I went to that church. There was something that was affectionate about that church with someone who's this new person. They didn't know me, except that, you know, I was somehow attached to Elia. And yet there was this warmth, and this warmth was, was wonderful. It was genuine. It was real. And so the, the strong ethnic and social and political barriers that may be ingrained in someone for years are removed by Christ through his work on the cross in bringing us into the family of God. And when we're brought into the family of God, there may be some lingering things that are there, but those who are at one time enemies are now brothers and sisters in Christ. And that rang so true to me the first time I ever went to Russia and I'm finding myself walking into a Russian church. These are people that our culture said, there are enemies. And I'm walking into the church and I'm seeing brothers and sisters who are welcoming me, who are loving me, who are embracing me, who are wanting to hear the word of God. You see, the family of God is the family of God no matter where you go in this world. The true church is present and the true church is the same, it is united around these truths. There's something precious about being among God's family. And we go to Bolivia or places when I've been in Costa Rica, whatever, you just go to these different places, you're like, here's the family of God. It's an incredible reality. Now, by no means does that mean that our cultures don't clash in the context of church because they do. But it does mean we have a much more, we have a, something far more in common than our cultures that clash. We're part of God's family together. One God and a Father of all who is overall, so he's, he's over the church. He is working through all and he is in all. Uh, friends, I, I, we could not, humanly speaking, come up with what God has created in the church. Just, it boggles your mind that, that anyone could say, well, this is a man-made religion creation. <laughs> it's because they don't understand all these truths and how they all work together. They're foundational for the church being united. And I want to just bring things to a close with these two concluding thoughts. I'll just mention them briefly. Number one, we must pursue an inclusive mindset. I do not mean by that welcome everyone with any weird doctrinal position. My point here is this. 
We want to be uniting the true church. Our goal should be to join arms and fellowship with those who are truly part of the church. We should have that mindset of eager participation, eager unity. And by the way, when, when scripture talks about division within the church, I don't know of any situation when that division in the church is talking about issues between churches. It has to do with issues within the context of a local church. But our mindset should be, if there are churches in our area, in our community, that are like-minded, that, that believe these things to be true, and believe them firmly and with passion, we should do all we can to say, we are uniting with you. Now, having said that, secondly, we must stand against a divided mindset that we don't want sinful division. I, I kind of grew up in my Christianity in a context where it was really popular to say, well, we have to separate from you. We can't have anything to do with you because you don't believe this, so we have to separate from you. We can't fellowship with you. And it was almost like a badge of honor to say, well, we've we separated from those people. And so much of that was sinful divisiveness. So, having said all that, the reality is that the gospel will divide, right? And the gospel will divide families, it will divide communities, it will divide churches, because not every church that claims to be a part of the true church is truly part of that true church. So you can drive by all sorts of buildings in our community that have the word church on them, but they do not believe the gospel. And they may have a distorted view of who God is and who Christ is and what, what it means to actually come to faith in Christ. And so there is a necessity to say, listen, we can't unite with you because you are not the true church. Our joy, though, is to unite with people who do embrace who Christ really is. You follow what I'm saying? Rather than having a mindset of, well, I don't know if we can, well, let's see, you know, jump through this hoop and this hoop. No, we want to have a mindset, hey, 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 you're a believer, great. The problem is, a lot of times, the more people talk, you're like, ooh, um, ah, uh, and you're hearing, and, and, and what hap what's happening is, all these doctrinal positions that we've looked at here are being undermined by false teaching. And Satan loves that. But our, our mindset, our attitude, the way we approach other people should be, hey, listen, we, we want to unite around the things that matter to God. Now, friends, this is so foundational for us. If we do not grasp the importance of theology and doctrine as our foundation, we're not going to be able to be humble, gentle, patient, forbearing with one another. We're certainly not gonna be able to pursue the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We need a doctrinal foundational um, or foundation to, to, to give us a place where we can stand. Lord, help us today. There's a sense in which we just scratch the surface, Lord, of this very important topic. But Lord, we are in awe that as your children, that we have a shared identity as being the body of Christ, 
gathered together by the Holy Spirit with a, a certain hope. Lord, we are amazed that we have a united testimony that Jesus is our Lord and that we have come to him by faith that is revealed to us by the faith and that we demonstrate that, Lord, by this baptism which identifies us with you and is a public testimony of that. And though we're amazed that we have this united family that we're a part of. Lord, help us to see these realities, Lord, as they are meant to be and to allow them to be the, the, the place of sure footing for us to live our lives for your glory. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.